I'm absolutely delighted to be recording this podcast with you, Kathy Rensenbrink, author of best-selling book, The Last Act of Love, and also Manual for Heartache. And you've been so brilliant at describing your own experience, and I'm of grief. And I'd love to know, well, first of all, to talk about what happened, but also how that experience has changed you and changed over time. Well, it's lovely to be here with you. Um, so I suppose to um, to describe what happened, to explain what happened, I was 17 and my brother Matty was 16. He was 13 months younger than me and nine inches taller than me and we lived in Yorkshire with our lovely parents in a pub, which was fun. So we were having a high old time and then one night he was knocked over by a car, taken to hospital. They did emergency brain surgery And, of course, we just desperately hoped that he would live, which he did, but he never fully regained consciousness. His diagnosis eventually was that he was in a persistent vegetative state. He stayed in that state for eight years, which means effectively that you have periods of wake and sleep, but otherwise, you know, the body deteriorates. It's horrible to witness. He stayed in that state for eight years, and then we applied to the family court to get permission to bring his life to an end. And he finally died eight years after the night that he was knocked over. I then just spent years, I think, blotting it out and unable to cope with the depths of feeling that I had about it. And it was much later that I realised it still burned within me, broiled within me, and I wrote a book about it and started thinking and talking about it which has its own pains, but I would say is a, is that it has been that that has finally enabled me to, to heal. Because that's where you and I meet, isn't it? That we, death is still very much a taboo. And we have been talking about grieving and the grieving process and what happens in order to make it less of a taboo so that people are much more aware of what is normal, that it feels like madness, but actually it isn't madness. And, you know, what I really got from your book is that we each have our own unique experience. Yours, devastating. I was just thinking again, what such a developmentally crucial time, you know, Mm. 17 to 25, Mm. just as you were sort of stepping into adulthood. So there's your own particular version of that but also the absolute ignorance that you didn't know that a lot of what you were feeling or how you responded was normal because that's often how you feel in grief and particularly in traumatic grief, you know, something so devastating coming out of a clear blue sky that, as you said, turns your life upside down and kind of tears up the rule book of life, doesn't it? It, You don't know what to believe in anymore. You don't know what to trust in anymore. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's true. I think that is there a line in your book about how you you look up and the sky's still the same, but when you look in the mirror, the person looking back at you is unrecognizable. And that did happen to me, but I I never understood it as part of a wider I never it, I think when I finally started to in some ways um get better, it, it was because I could see myself as a, you know, just a human being doing what a human being does in those circumstances. And that's why I do feel you know, as you so 
brilliantly explained. We can't fix people. There are certain life events that just are excruciating and terrible. And I think because we have this taboo about death, <laughs> we sort of think it's unfair, don't we? But, you know, I mean, life is hard and it often hurts and terrible things happen and it's not fair. Um and I often think I'd sort of almost been brought up a bit too well, really. <laughs> I'd really, like, bought all that crap that if you behave well and if you're a good girl and if good you try things. hard, yeah. everything's going to be OK. And really, up until, you know, up until that night, the things I worried about was stuff like, you know, whether I came first or second in the class or what my exam results were going to be or boy stuff, you know. And just to be catapulted into an entirely different universe, it felt like another reality. Um, and I don't... I don't say this to blame anybody at the time because, of course, I mean, one of the things I struggled with over the time, given the magnitude of what was happening to my brother, I felt unable to ask for any help for myself. So in perhaps a height, well, it's not necessarily heightened, probably lots of people feel it in the same way. I felt it was very important to present an image of coping to the world because, of course, we were all focused on my brother and what was happening to him so of course from the distance now I can feel compassion for that 17 year old girl falling into bits and nobody noticing and nobody helping and nobody um knowing what to do with me so much whereas um I was rereading your book this morning you know just the first 12 pages just the introduction I was reading it and thinking why didn't I get you know why couldn't I've had this earlier why couldn't someone given this to me when I was 17 18 19 25 30 35 what what, what is in those 12 I mean I know I wrote it <laughs> what the what's hell the, did I put? what's the stuff I wish I'd known yeah. because I think this is the this is where we um I'm very interested in how we all have our individual stories. You know, so my story of what happened to my brother, it's very specific and lots of people won't have encountered that. But I regularly now encounter other people who also have specific stories. Now, the the people we love and what happens to them and how that hurts us is very specific to us. But actually, the process we go through, we have an awful lot in common with other people. And certainly for me, that's been so helpful to not feel so alone, to think like, oh, maybe I'm not completely insane. That, may, that Maybe that's how human beings behave when they feel really hurt, when they've lost the person they loved. But I'm, I've, it's, it's all underlined and stuff, so I'm thinking, but what was the bit? We need to respect and understand the process of grief and acknowledge its necessity. As humans, we naturally try to avoid suffering, but contrary to all our instincts to heal our grief, we need to allow ourselves to feel the pain. So I spent years, um, well, I spent years drunkenly talking about it to anyone who would listen and quite a lot of people who didn't want to listen. <laughs> and, um, and then years completely blocking it out and pretending to be a different person, a competent, cheerful, untroubled person. And I don't, but I don't think I had a. I don't think I even realised really that was what I was doing. I don't think I had a grasp on any of these things we're talking about until I was about forty. Fascinating, isn't it? That this idea that everybody has that time heals, and in my experience, and certainly from what you're saying, is that time itself is neutral. Mm. It's the psychological work that you do in that time that makes the difference. And what I go on to say um, in that introduction is that pain is the agent of change. Of course, we don't want to feel pain, but it's pain that forces us to face a reality that we don't want to face, that the person, in your case, Matt, has died, Mm -hmm. 
or in your case for eight years, was a living loss. Mm -hmm. So it was like he was dead, mm -hmm. but he was alive. So that's mm -hmm. incredibly confusing. Mm -hmm. But th there is no kind of understanding of that, is there? No, I don't think so. I think the I think and and I think that saying "time heals" is actually very difficult because I remember. Um, I remember someone saying to me after my brother died and I was spinning around and someone said to me like, oh, it takes a year. Time heals, but it takes a year. I don't remember who this person is, but I remember I just accepted that. So I just thought, right, that's it. I just grit. Through. I just grit. You know, I just kind of, I don't know, get drunk for a year or grin and bear it for a year or whatever. And I just remember being really surprised and aggravated that the year passed, nothing had changed. And of course, I understand now that time... I was talking. I did a prison visit the other day. Actually, and we were talking about time, and everyone was sort of agreeing that if you haven't done, if if nothing has changed in the time, then the time's kind of irrelevant. Um, and I think that another little bit that I really like here, which I think is very relevant to this, is um, in in my book. In your book, the process that's hidden below consists of a tug of war between the pain of loss and our instinct to survive. The process is in the movement, the back and forth. And I think that's so important because I think in general, we tend to misconceive grief as a linear process. So day one, you feel dreadful. Day whatever, year, whatever it is, you feel better. And that that's happened in incremental stages, tiny bit better every day. And my experience wasn't like that at all. It was a zigzag. It was a roller coaster. I was spinning from one state of affairs to another. Sometimes I did feel a bit better. I thought, that's OK, I'm fixed. Next day, back in a massive hole. And I understand that now as that tug between my own inability to face the pain of the loss, but also my own instinct to survive and how those... You know, on some days, the force is greater in the one. But because I didn't have any kind of framework for understanding that, I had no agency in my own recovery. I was just storm-tossed, just t just flopping about. So I think this is why I think it's so important to talk about all these things. Not that I expect everybody who's not in a current state of grief to do their homework, by, <laughs> but but just being a little bit aware that when things happen as they do because it is a part of life that things will happen that people will die that yeah but that but that other people have trodden the path before us and that there are things that can help us understand the experience we're having because i think what's so powerful about the last act of love and you talking now and in some ways about the stories in my book is that we kind of have to know what's going on on the inside of us. You know, grief is invisible. Mm -hmm. And people will would say to you, you're looking so great, you're looking so well, so well, well done you. Mm. And you could have, as you did for a long time, use every kind of anaesthetic. People use sex, they mm -hmm. use drugs, they use drink, they use busyness and mm. work to block the pain. And... In your case, it was kind of like a live capsule in you mm -hmm. for all of those years. But unless you have a kind of basic cognitive understanding that actually we need to connect with what's invisible mm -hmm. to go inside and find a way of connecting and finding words or some ways of expressing our mm -hmm. grief, it does stay untouched. And it felt to me in your book that by writing the book, was the therapeutic process for you in the first place because that's where 
you began to develop a growing awareness of your own process and to find words to describe it. And then from there, you could do a kind of greater progress and adaptation. Because what I talk about as grief is that it's it's an accommodation. Mm. It's a, you, people never, they talk about the new me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the same person. Yeah. It forces you to change. It doesn't mean that the loss is less. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel very strongly from everything you've said to me is that you love Matt as much today as you did. Yeah, mm. I do. That does, that bit doesn't go away. You're entirely right. That, but but it is a smaller part of the whole, I think. Um, so that sudden pain I'm feeling now, because you've just told the truth, I love him as much as I ever did. But I have accommodated it within a, a sort of a wider understanding that I love other things as well and I love other people as well and there is more life to be lived. Um, You've built a life around it. I've built a life around it. I love the word accommodation. I used to hate the word acceptance. Because you can't accept it. <laughs> a 16-year-old boy was run over. I, I mean, that is never acceptable. I, can't, I sort of can't ever accept that, really. But I can really accommodate. I can make loads of progress with accommodating it. I can be a brilliant accommodator. <laughs> You sound like you're a B&B owner. <laughs> yes, I can really get into the... And again, as you say in your book, the whole thing is that thing of it is a bit different for everyone. There are things we can learn together. But something for me, the word accommodation, when I first came across it, I just liked it. I thought that's going to work for it's me. Friendly. I'm going to work with that. I'm going to mm. be able to work with the notion of accommodation. And I still do. And I think everything you were just saying then, it's that other problem as well with this idea of time being a healer. I think I thought that what time would do would be that it would somehow reset me, you know, that I would be restored to factory settings. Mm. But, of course, I'm never going to be the same person as I was the day before my brother was knocked over because Mm. I don't have him. And also the day before he was knocked over, I just didn't know how cruel life would be. I'm never going to be back to that person. But what I've come to see is, this is a bit difficult to explain, but what I've come to see is almost like, not like why do I want to be? Not because I don't want it to have happened, because of course I do. But but part of being a human being is that we live and we experience and we learn. And that, you know, and life isn't supposed to be a non-stop ego-stroking barrage of treats. <laughs> it's actually full of difficult things. And the, we, it, it's not like that they happen and you tick off. You know, oh, I've had my first loss. I got over that, over that. Okay, but these things do happen, and it is. It does seem uh, cruel that for some people they happen a bit earlier than for others and some people they happen a bit more brutally than for others. But it's part of being a human being, isn't it? And at the end of our hopefully long, hopefully interesting lives, hopefully filled with people that we love and service that we do and things that we learn and books that we read and art that we admire and music we hear, and there will have been a lot of pain in the life. And in a way you've perfectly in the moment with me expressed what a grieving process is because you felt the stab of the pain of loss when I Mm -hmm. said you loved Matt you didn't block it you didn't shut it down you let it run through your system Mm -hmm. you find the words to describe it to acknowledge it yeah gave yourself permission to really love him Mm -hmm. really feel it and paradoxically, 
in acknowledging it, feeling your love for him, as painful as it was, mm. it kind of released you to have a surge of energy. It did, actually, <laughs> didn't it? Yeah, and reminded me of what I now feel committed to, the life that I'm in, to have two feet in my own life, to not, you know, to not just lie around in a pile of depression, moping and pining for what isn't, for what I can't have. And that is what is so simple on the one hand, but so complex on the other hand, is that fundamental understanding of the paradox that if we allow ourselves to mm. feel the pain, we do incrementally over time heal. I mean, heal being a a tidy word because yeah. <laughs> it sounds like fixed. But what I mean is you learn to live with something yeah. that you have no choice over. Yeah. And I think where we have choice, we have no choice about death. We can't fix it. We can't make it better. Mm. But we do have choice in our relationship with it and our relationship with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And one of the kind of cruelties of grief is often people turn the pain against themselves. Mm. And everybody has a kind of default mode of coping with difficulty. They have their own that's been learned from the sort of adults around them. But I think what you and I want through our books and um, through these podcasts is to recognise that you it doesn't stop you having your, your kind of default mode of coping, but you can develop other modes. Mm. And so that you can support yourself to go on and live an engaged and loving life mm -hmm. with the fact that you also feel enormous loss and pain. Yeah. I think at one point I thought that the, that, I, that the pain would be, I don't know, that if I didn't succeed in blocking out the pain, that it just it would finish me, you, you know, it would have me, it would beat me. I'd lose the struggle. Um, and But it is your paradox. By admitting, uh, by accepting that it's there and will always be there in some measure, it does liberate me to have time to notice joy and wonder and other things. And that is, that's just really true. And there's a bit, I like the bit you put here as well. We may want to be happy again, knowing it is right and fair, but feel guilty because somehow it seems wrong and bad. And again, that kind of sums up quite a lot of <laughs> behaviour. Yeah, so when I got out of the stage of just lying in a puddle, <laughs> then became, and of course, but with no understanding of this at the time, I can only really see it when I look back, just this, again, this, uh, this instinct to survive, but every time something went a bit well, this crushing guilt, guilt that I could want to. And the way I, the way I kind of summarise that in my own head now, I say to people is, you know, don't feel bad about feeling bad and don't feel bad when you can feel You're a bit good. good. Um, yeah, that's nice. And just allowing... Well, a lot of it's just allowing yourself to this this kind of continual, um, you know, mental telling off we give ourselves for what we shitty feel. Shitty committee. Yeah, shitty committee. Um, whereas actually, if you just allow what you feel to be there, because it is there, whether, you know, without getting involved in whether or not you're right to be feeling this, um, I think that can be. And then lash it and beat it and oh, use it against you. Oh, the beating and the recriminations and the... Um, Remember someone I can't remember who it was saying to me, "Would you treat? Would you treat or speak about anybody else the way you speak about yourself?" And it exactly. was this profound moment because actually, you know, I am pretty understanding of other people. I've got quite a high tolerance for what other people do wrong, incredibly high standards for my own behaviour. 
or critical. Yeah, but but again, once you re- once you notice that, and once you know, again, very helpful for me to realise know that that's a thing. That's a thing people do. Quite a lot of people do that. It, it's something people do. It's not bad that I do it. But if I learn to notice it and do it a bit less, then life is going to have more interesting things in it. Mm. So for me, so much of it is about just getting a little bit of awareness, a little bit of awareness about something, which then means I can kind of slow down and notice what's happening rather than jump immediately into, obviously at one point, kind of distraction and blotting out. And then a later point, kind of, you know, recrimination, beatings, work, you know. <laughs> because the other thing I think you've been, maybe more than you realise, a, a big advocate on, of is the, the measure of the loss for a sibling. I mm. mean, often people talk about siblings mm. as the invisible mourners. Mm. You know, the parents are the primary mourners, or if it's an adult sibling that dies, it's the partner or children of the partner. But siblings often get kind of relegated to the back mm-hmm. and not acknowledged. And yet, Matt, you know, he was nine inches taller than you and, and was it 13 months? 13 months younger. Younger. Every, you know, certainly cognizant memory you had yeah, included Matt. Yeah. And the shared memories, the history you know, both looking at your parents and you two are the only two that would have those parents. Mm. That's an enormous part of your heart, isn't it? It's an enormous yeah. part of your being. Yeah, he, and I feel that, you know, I learned about love by loving him, really. So he's everywhere in the deepest bits of me. Um, and it's interesting what you said about becoming an advocate for it without really realising it. I don't think I did fully realise the extent to which that book is about sibling loss almost until it was published and people started writing to me I must say the most beautiful thing about writing a book is people responding to it I hadn't expected it and not I mean it genuinely is a great honor I think to I think it it's it's just a great one that anybody can be bothered to consume anything you produce, isn't it? But when people engage and then write to me with their own story of what's happened to them, I just there's something so beautiful about it for me. But also there's something very intellectually brilliant about it. So I feel that my understanding of sibling loss has expanded, not just through writing my book, but from the response to my book. And I now feel I really get it, especially in adolescence, which is what I was. So you're losing the person who's been extremely central to your life. Kind of, irres- I mean, I was very fond of my brother. Sometimes people aren't necessarily that keen on their siblings, but I don't think it makes the loss any the less no, no. because more of the centrality. Yeah, so it's more mm. complicated, there's more guilt. Mm. So irrespective of whether or not you're best friends or whether or not, you know, you're always nicking their stuff, they're central to you. You, you have to navigate the loss of them at the same time as you yourself are not stable because you're 15, 17, whatever. But also, and this is such a big thing, you're navigating changed parents. And I I only fully understood what that had done to me when I was talking to my friend. Uh, well, she became, I knew her, you know, she was my, uh, my son's friend's mum. I knew her a bit, but we became friends once she read my book and then shared her own experience. Um, her sister died. They were 15 and 17, I think. And she said to me, I was upstairs in my bedroom and my parents were in the kitchen crying. And I'd never heard them make that sort of noise before. Mm. And my understanding 
clunked into place with sort of huge compassion, both for Caroline and her parents making this noise, but also also for me and what it meant to witness my parents in such great distress. You know, my loving, amazing, funny parents and to see them so destroyed. And actually, that too had been a big deal that I hadn't... Um, I hadn't acknowledged, I hadn't, again, if it was happening to someone else, I would be able to say, actually, that's quite a big deal. (laughs) You could be a bit kinder to yourself about it. But also, seeing them devastated, so losing them as the people that were looking after you, that you could rely on, it feels to me from your book that the roles were entirely reversed and part of why you couldn't deal with your own loss with Matt was because you felt you had to be okay in order to give them hope and to protect them from your distress because mm-hmm. you felt, and maybe rightly, who knows, that they couldn't manage anything more. You know, that it was bad enough seeing Matt. Yeah, I felt they deserved a fully functioning child. Um, and lots of people, you know, all the siblings, all the surviving siblings that write to me say, say pretty much the same thing. And I get some of the letters that really touch me is when I hear from parents who say reading your book has helped me understand a bit of the experience of my surviving child. So I think it's a very common and understandable thing. Because the irony is, so for, again, years I kind of really wanted to pretend I was okay for my parents. The irony is when I stopped pretending so much we had a much more honest and warmer and sweeter relationship and I remember my mum saying to me I didn't want to talk about my grief for Matty because I didn't want you to feel you weren't enough so we we entered into a conspiracy of silence I wasn't being myself in front of them because I thought they deserved for me to be okay they were also you know we all we were so frightened of hurting each other that we hid from each other whereas I would say now it's not uncomplex, you know, it's hard work. We've done our grief work together separately. And I would say now there is a depth and a warmth and an honesty and a sweetness to the relationship that I don't think we would ever have achieved without sort of sharing a bit of pain, sharing a bit of vulnerability. And of course, again, partly I think the point of all this is, or the a, a big factor for me is I have a, you know, I have a son now and... I want I want to model to him that it's okay to have emotions. <laughs> you know, I want to model to him that when things hurt, you can say that they hurt. I don't want him to grow up thinking he's got to hide things. Um, and I just feel, I do feel full of sort of gratitude and warmth for the family that I've got because I'm allowing myself to be honest about the pain for what I don't have anymore. And it's through the you know, I can completely get how you both would have thought that I love that I love my mum I need to protect her yeah. and she was looking at using I need to protect mm-hmm. my daughter from my pain but the protection creates walls yeah and actually expressing the pain creates bridges mm-hmm. where you can understand each other and get inside each other's mm-hmm. hearts and feel supported mm-hmm. rather than arm yourself and feel brittle mm-hmm. But also it feels very, I feel kind of very moved hearing you describe how it's changed you and you would have punched somebody for this. You may punch <laughs> me now. That you also feel it's enriched you in some way. I mean, it never gets away 
from the agony of Matt's loss, but it does feel that it's given that the level of the loss has given you depths of understanding of yourself and being in relationship that you may not have got to without him dying. And in a way, you can't even say that in the same sentence without it sounding crass. No, it's. I was always so resist. I think it's really difficult, isn't it? All that like, oh well, everything happens for a reason. Oh, that's so you nice. know. Somebody said to me like, oh, you wouldn't be so good at dealing with people in prisons if you hadn't been like really screwed up yourself. I said, oh well, thanks. <laughs> so it's not that. But I tell you what, I I read a great book by John Hull, who was a academic and theologian who who went blind, and he writes about the descent into what he calls deep blindness. And by the end of the book, there was this line, and I thought, actually, I can take that. He said, it's a gift. It's not a gift I wanted, <laughs> but it is a gift. And I think the, the, there's something in that, isn't it? This, the, this isn't knowledge that I wanted. This isn't experience I wanted to have. But given that I've got it, maybe I should use it. Because it does mean I know things. And it does mean, you know, I really like being helpful to other people. I really like being useful and being a bit of service. And if I can, if I can ever, if I can do anything to make other people's journeys just a little bit less brutal, you know, just for them to feel a little bit less alone, for people to feel a little bit less crazy you know there's not there's a limit to what people can do but there's help available I remember a friend saying to me after she read the first book she said imagine what it would have been like for you if you'd had someone like you Mm. and I just thought that's that is kind of amazing so yeah so that so there's a way of I think and it's not everything happens for a reason at all but there is a way of looking at the mangled wreckage around you and then crafting it into something Accommodating. Accommodating, yeah, accommodating, rebuilding. An annoying word too, in a way, but it is is what you're saying is, and maybe this is a good place to end, is that it isn't what happens. It isn't what happens to us that defines us, but our relationship with what happens to us that defines and predicts our future. To a great extent. Well, we can't change what's happened, can we? But we can change our relationship with what's happened. We can always change the way we think and behave and relate to what's happened. Um, the other bit I just love about the book, and it comes right in the introduction, is about is all about how to work out how to have a relationship with the person that's died. Mm. Because that's been such a big thing for me. I think your book explains really well how you can have a relationship with the person that's died and that's important because we have a sense of the ongoing relationship with them and this is the line I love when this is unacknowledged or even denied our minds may become disordered or unbalanced but when this is understood our overwhelming feeling will be one of relief Mm. and I think that's so incredibly important and I think you just describe it beautifully Thank you, Cathy. Thank you for that. And thank you for being your remarkably honest and true self with me. <laughs> and isn't it a gift that we've met each other through through grief? It is. And to, obviously I can do this because I trust you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Cathy. Thank you.